If there is a God, as of course I believe there is, and if he rules the world by his sovereignty, as the Bible says that he does, and if he is going to bring human history to a close according to his plan and render to every man his eternal destiny, whether to heaven or to hell, as Jesus says he will, then there are two questions that are of infinite importance to every individual, and they are these. One, what is the goal of God in creating and governing the world? And two, how can we bring our lives into conformity to that goal? Because if we don't know the goal, and if we don't have our lives in alignment with that goal, we will find ourselves at cross purposes with our God and excluded from his kingdom in the age to come. It is a fearful thing to live at cross purposes with your maker. But on the other hand, there is nothing that gives more encouragement or more pluck for daily life than to know the purpose of God in the world and feel your heart warmly in tune with it. Nothing has nourished my Christian faith over the last 12 years like knowing what God is after in this world and discovering the way to bring my life into alignment with that goal. So this Sunday, I want to answer the first question from the Word of God. What is the goal of God in creating and redeeming mankind? And then next Sunday, I want to talk about the second question, namely, how can we bring our lives into conformity to that goal, into alignment with it? And I hope you all come back. I think that you might be surprised and happy about what you hear. Today, the text is Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. More specifically, the text is verse 7, but we want to read it in context. Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. Perhaps since it's just been read, I'll just sum up the argument. Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. The main point of the text is, don't be afraid, my people. It's repeated twice. Verse 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. So the main point, which you can often tell by how often it's repeated, is the command to God's people at that time and to us today, don't be afraid about what man can do to you or nature can do to you. Besides the main point that's repeated twice, in between there, there are arguments for why God's people ought not to be afraid. In verses 1 through 4, the argument goes something like this. You ought not be afraid because what I did for you in the past proves that I love you and my care is great for you. I redeemed you from Egyptian bondage. I called you by name. You are mine. So you can count on me that when 
the fire rages and the floods come, I will help you. I am your God, your Savior. You are precious to me. Look, I've subjugated peoples on your behalf. I've cost other people a lot in order to save you. So don't be afraid of the trouble that's coming upon you. That's argument number one. Then in verses 5 through 7 comes a second argument for why God's people ought not be afraid. And it goes like this. I'm with you. And remember that the trouble that's coming upon you in the bondage that you're going to go into in Babylon is not my last word to you. I am going to gather you again from the ends of the earth because you are called by my name. I created you for my glory. That's the second argument for why God's people ought not be afraid. What is it then that at rock bottom moves God to help his people? What's the baseline of this argument? Verse 4 says, You are precious in my eyes. I love you. Is that the answer? Is that the bottom line? Well, in a sense, I think it is. When John wrote his first epistle and said, God is love, surely he meant at least that no matter how deeply you probe into the motivation of God, you will never come to a layer which is not love. But this text, verses 1 to 7, drives me down, down, down into the heart of God and raises the question for me as to whether it's simple enough just to say love is what motivates God to help his people. The question we have to raise is, how come there is an Israel to be loved? In order to love a people, they've got to be there. In order for somebody to be precious in your eyes, they have to exist. I have three sons. They're precious to me. I love them. But I did not love them in 1970, and they were not precious to me. They hadn't even been conceived or planned in 1970. They were not, which is always a mystery to me that they might never have been. But that's the way it is with Israel. Why did Israel come into being so that she could then be precious and loved in God's sight? What was the motive before there was an Israel to love? And verse 7, our text for the morning, gives the answer. God created Israel... That's who he's talking about here, not just in general. God created Israel for his glory. The existence of God's people Israel was planned and conceived and achieved so that God might get himself glory in the world. And so the question has to be asked, what does it mean for God to get glory for himself through a people? But before we ask that question, let's broaden the scope of the statement. Is it true that it's only in choosing Israel that God was after his glory? Or is that the motive that has governed all of his acts from creation and will govern them to the end of the world? That's the question we need to answer first before we ask what it is. In one sense, the exodus of Israel out of Egypt and the gathering and receiving of the law at Mount Sinai could be called the birth of the nation Israel. 
At Mount Sinai, God gave the regulations for the nation. Before that time, it was kind of a loosely assembled group of tribes. But here she becomes a nation. And from Sinai on, the law of God characterized and gave backbone to Israel as a nation. But now if that's true, then the election of Abraham, the first Jew, hundreds of years earlier in Genesis 12, I think would have to be compared to the conception of the child who was then born years later at the crossing of the Red Sea. And all the period in between, the period of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the stay in captivity, in bondage in Egypt, would be the kind of gestation period, the embryonic time before the child comes full term. Now, if that's true, then I think we can say that Isaiah 43.7 means I created you, that is, I chose you in Genesis 12, I preserved you throughout Genesis, and I brought you out and made you a nation in Exodus for my glory, the whole thing. And if that's true, we're put upon a very interesting link at the beginning of Israel's history in Genesis 12 with something that just went before in Genesis 11. And you remember what happens in Genesis 11. This is interesting, and I think you might want to look at it in more detail. So flip over to Genesis chapter 11 to the story of the building of the Tower of Babel. You remember the people in the plain of Shinar got this bright idea that they were going to build a tower and make a name for themselves straight up into the heavens. And God peeks down there to see this teeny little tower, does not like at all what he sees, and frustrates their designs. Why was he upset? Verse 4 of Genesis 11. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, ever since Adam and Eve had chosen to eat of the forbidden tree in order to be like God, in order to be independent and wise in their own eyes, men have been enslaved to a rebellious heart that hates to rely on God and just loves to make a name for itself. And the Tower of Babel was a manifestation of that rebellion, and God frustrated their designs. But instead of abandoning the human race, like he almost did back at the flood, but promised he never would do, God chooses one solitary man, Abram, and makes him a promise. And notice now, as we read this promise in Genesis 12:1, the contrast between what God intends to do and what the people who wanted to build the Tower of Babel intended to do. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you great, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. The people working on the Tower of Babel said, let us make a name for ourselves. God chooses the father of Israel and says, I will make your name great. Now, what does Moses want us to understand by writing this primal history in this way? I think he wants to say something like this. 
When ancient man refused to align himself with the purposes of God, God turned to do a new thing, but to achieve the very same goal. Man was created to rely on God and give him glory. But ever since the fall, instead, man have relied on themselves and sought to give themselves glory to make a name for themselves. So God elected one man and made a promise to him and said, now I'm going to make you great so that I get the credit, not you. In other words, the goal of God in creating Israel, as Isaiah 43, 7 says it is, was not a goal that originated at Genesis 12 with the election of Abraham. Rather, it's the goal that has guided God's purposes from the very beginning, and man has fallen short again and again. He created man in his image. Male and female created he them. Why? So that they might image forth God, not themselves. Multiply and fill the world. Why? So that the knowledge of the glory of God might fill the earth like the waters fill the sea. That's why he created man in his own image. And ever since then, men have been trying to run from that image and to glorify themselves instead of God. But God, again and again, has made it his aim to make sure he gets the glory. So, it's not just Israel, but we who have been created for God's glory. And that's why the New Testament again and again and again calls us, the church, to glorify God. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, not you. That's the point of the New Testament. It's the point of the Old Testament. It's been God's point and his goal ever since the beginning. He created us for his glory. Now, we can go back to the question, what does it mean for God to create a people and to seek through them his glory? Glory is a very hard concept to define, isn't it? It's very much like the word beauty. We all use it and we communicate with it pretty well, but when you ask somebody, tell me what beauty is, we're hard put for a definition. It's easier to point to examples like Something Noel and I enjoyed back at the last faculty dinner they gave for us at Bethel. A sunset seen from the 50th floor of the IDS Tower on a spring evening. That's glory. Or the IDS Tower itself, like crystal, almost invisible against a gray-blue sky in the afternoon. That's glory. Or a perfect performance on the balance beam by Nadia Comaneci. That's glory too. Or a perfectly executed 30-foot jump shot with one second to go. That's glory. We all know what that is. The glory of God is, I think, the beauty and the excellence of of all his manifold perfections. It's an effort to put into words what God is in his 
magnificence and his purity. It might be referred to his individual attributes, power, mercy, justice, and so on, because every one of those is awesome in its magnificence and its quality. But in general, the term refers to the summing up or the harmony of all of those attributes into one infinitely beautiful and personal being. That's the glory of God. Now, when God says, I created you, people at Bethlehem, for my glory, he did not mean I created you to help me become more glorious. It's unthinkable that God could become more perfectly God by making something that's not God, isn't it? It's, an un it's a, a staggering, but I think necessary thought that God has always been. I can remember as a little boy, I can't remember how old, but we had spiral steps that went up to the top of our roof. And I would go up and lay down on the roof at night and look up in the sky. And I would get so frightened because of how endless they told me that was. That black was not a wall, it was just endless. I think we ought to feel something like that when we ponder God, that he didn't ever start. He never started. He just always was. No matter how far you can go back, there was God. And he never came into being, which implies that everything that is not God came into being by God and through God. And so whatever is flows from his fullness and can never add anything to God which did not already come from God. That's simply what it means to be God. But what does then Isaiah 43, 7 mean if it doesn't mean we make him more glorious? I think what it means is he made us that he might through us display his glory. Make it known and see to it that it gets praised as it ought to be praised. And I think that's the goal of God that we have to bring ourselves into alignment with if we're to escape his judgment at the last day. This becomes clearer as we page through Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 21, for example. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. To give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That's just another way of saying I created them for my glory, that they might declare my praise. Or Isaiah 44:23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. In other words, in response to their redemption, Israel is going to join the skies and the valleys and the mountains and the forests and give God glory and make his glory known and praised and displayed among the nations. But there's another text. One I want to spend just a little more time on than these two. Isaiah 48, 
And look at this one with me. Verses 9 to 11. This makes it more clear than any other that I can find what it means for God to make a people and redeem a people for his own glory. Isaiah 48, 9. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What an amazing text. What a wonderfully unmodern and anti-20th century text. How ugly and repulsive this must be to the God of this age, to the prince of the power of the air. But oh, how sweet, how bright, how high, how full of allurement to those who love God with all their heart. This text was written mainly for Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. But we've already seen that the motivation of God doesn't change from age to age. What moves him to do a thing has been moving him from the start and will move him to the end. So we can apply this text, at least that aspect of it, to us, the church, God's people in our day. And there are two things that just cry out to be stressed from Isaiah 48, 9 to 11 for our day. And the first is this. Our salvation is for God's sake. For my name's sake, I withhold my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. To be sure, God will save his people. He will bless us infinitely. But it is for his sake, for his name, for his praise that he saves his people. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? Where this perspective is lost, where this perspective is lost and God's glory is no longer the great goal of redemption, pitiful and miserable substitutes come into the church. Substitutes which distort the work of redemption by exalting human value inordinately and belittle the primacy of God. And surely I don't have to spell out for you in any detail that, in fact, today that perspective has been lost in many churches. But I pray not here. Man is the star in the contemporary drama. And his concerns, his prosperity, his comfort, his health are the great goals of our day. To be sure, God is on the stage, kind of a co-star, supporting actor to uh, meet the cultural and the religious expectations and round out the picture. But what a world apart, what a world apart is Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. And even more so, Ezekiel 36. Now, Ezekiel 36, verses 21 to 32 contains a great and wonderful promise that all of you have heard many times about the new covenant and how God's going to write his law in the heart, put his spirit within us, take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of the flesh. 
But why don't we read the verses just before and just after so that we keep our concept of salvation in biblical perspective? Listen, starting at verse 21 rather than starting at verse 24. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel caused to be profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. You shall dwell in the land which I give to your fathers, which I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. That you may never again suffer the disgrace of the famine among the nations. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that they were not good. And you will loathe yourselves. For your iniquities and your abominable deeds. It is not for your sake that I will act, says the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. That's the first thing that has to be stressed in our utterly man centered day from Isaiah 48 9 to 11. The second thing is this God will not allow his name to be profaned for long. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he will not tolerate forever those who refuse to give him glory, but instead regard something else as more glorious, more worthy of his allegiance. My glory I will not give to another, he said. And that's why I said back at the beginning, it is a fearful thing to live at cross purposes with your maker. There is a judgment day, and the issue on the judgment day will be very simply this. Has, have we been with God in his goal to glorify his great name? Or has his glory been to us a matter of indifference or even animosity? We're left with two questions at the end of this message. The one is, how do we bring our lives into conformity with, into alignment with God's goal in the world? What sorts of things must we think and feel and do in order to give glory to God and not to ourselves? Is it just another weight to make us sigh? Or is it wings to make us fly? Next Sunday... I'll try to give the answer to that question. And then another question that I'm going to try to answer next Sunday is this. How come it's right for...
for God to seek his own glory when he told us so clearly in the Bible, we better not seek our own glory. How come it's loving for God instead of selfish? That's next week's message. But before next week, every one of us here today is in need of bringing our lives into more full alignment with the glory of God. None of us is perfectly aligned. And it's my conviction and assumption that there are some here who until this very point in their lives have lived at total cross purposes with God and haven't given a rip for his glory and whether our lives cause that glory to be reflected among men. And I beg of such people not to wait until next Sunday to be reconciled to God. It may be too late. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.